I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, media activist and scholar Hirk Loving. We thinkers, artists, activists, cultural workers, we have a special responsibility because we are working in the concept factories. We can make a difference. Here it will be helping us see how an understanding of the political economy is not enough. We have to reacquaint ourselves with the experiential layer of our humanity and even reclaim our sadness to counter the stultifying effects of platform capitalism. My new book, Team Human, a manifesto drawn from the experience and learnings of this show, is just off the presses and ready for pre-order. Yes, that's a hint. Order the book, the ebook, or even the audiobook now if you can, or tell your library to get it. I feel like I should be embarrassed asking you to buy my book, but it's not like I'm asking you to buy it so I can get rich. Really, since the beginning, I've seen my books less as a business than as propaganda, really more like the theater I used to do. It's pollen-spreading ideas. The books are really meant as totems, almost sigil magic. The more team human books out there, the more humans will be aware of the team. And I do spend the money I make on it, or a significant portion of it, just buying books for students and people on free team human live events and on this show. I'm going to spend as much of the coming months traveling as I can, 
given the limitations of family and all the real-life challenges that many of them are facing right now. I'll get the whole tour listed on Rushkoff.com. It's New York, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, Austin, Texas, Toronto. But if you want me to get to some place in particular, be sure to get in touch. Just email team at teamhuman.fm and let us know where you want us. We're going to be taking a week or two off for the holidays, but we'll be replaying some favorite episodes and special content over the break. Then I'll be doing shows throughout the tour, beginning with a Team Human Live tomorrow evening, Thursday, December 12th at the Civic Hall in New York City with Mark Pesci and Penny Abbey-Wardina. I'll be doing interviews with people everywhere I go, monologues from hotel rooms, and some recordings of the more interesting events. So January through March should make for some really interesting content from around the U.S. and London. People have been asking me what this book is about, you know, and I keep telling them, well, it's a manifesto for Team Human and all that. But there is something specific. I mean, there is a, a newsworthy story in there. And that is that there is a Silicon Valley religion embedded in the technologies that we're using in, in Google and Uber and Facebook and Amazon, among others. It's a techno-utopian and deeply anti-human sensibility. And it was really first hatched when the self-help movement of the Bay Area was married to a futurist Russian philosophy called cosmism. And the idea was that technology would be our evolutionary successor, that humans are essentially computational, and that computers could do this better than humans. And these values were really taught at Stanford, in the philosophy classes of René Girard to some extent, and certainly the captology classes of B.J. Fogg. And as a result, we have the graduates of those programs at Facebook using algorithms to program people's behaviors. We have graduates at Uber using machine learning to replace people's employment. We have Google developing artificial intelligences to replace human consciousness. We have Amazon extracting the life's blood of the human marketplace to deliver returns to the abstracted economy of stock derivatives. The anti-human agenda of technologists maybe wouldn't be so bad if it didn't dovetail so neatly with the anti-human agenda of corporate capitalism. Each one enables the other, reinforcing an abstract growth-based scheme of infinite expansion. And it's utterly compatible with human life or sustainability of our ecosystem. We're not being beaten by machines, but by a league of tech billionaires who've been taught that human beings are the problem and technology is the solution. We have to become aware of their agenda and fight it if we're going to survive. I'm Ramesh Srinivasan, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Damian Williams, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jamie Cohen, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human. Coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. You can support Team Human by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. 
And how do we fight the machine? Well, today's show takes me back to the origins of what became known as tactical media, using interactive media from camcorders and billboards to the internet to promote the human agenda. I really first learned of it from today's guest, media theorist and intellectual hacker Kurt Loving. He's best known I think, as the editor of Mediamatic, a magazine of the early and late 90s. Uh, he was the editor of the Money Lab Readers, which are these anthologies of alternative economic strategies. And right now, he's founding director of the Institute of Network Cultures. And his new book is coming out, actually in a couple of months, Sad by Design on Platform Nihilism. Geert, I'm so glad to have you on. It's great to hear your voice after all this time. Yes, it's been a while. It's funny, reading your new book, Sad by Design, was an interesting experience for me. It puts me in a mood of almost techno-nostalgia. Mm. I remember the first time I met you was in 1993 at a conference you put on called The Next Five Minutes at the Paradiso in Amsterdam, and it had, you know, media activists from from Paul Guerin, who was the the young man who taped the uh, Tompkins Square riots with his uh, with his camcorder and captured police beating uh, the protesters, to to Canadian media theorist Arthur Croker, to the punk kids from Oxford who today are respected media scholars like Matthew Fuller, uh, to Marty Lucas from Deep Dish TV, and it felt like this magical moment that the internet had come and it would release the power of our countercultural Marxist and anarchist movements. <laughs> and I wasn't a Silicon Valley techno optimist, but a cyberpunk techno optimist who believed that the net would break the tyranny of top down corporations and the yuppie scum who ran them. It, it felt like the graffiti hacker world was upon us. But now when I read your book, Sad by Design, uh, one concept that you helped elucidate there is that really only this first initiative, this first impulse in a new technology that has that kind of integrity to it. Yeah, that's true. This is an old um, wisdom. Those who step in first have um, an unbiased view a, a kind of a panoramic overview of all the uh, possibilities that are out there when um, a new medium uh, unfolds. And um, those, uh, you know, pioneers, they, uh, yeah, they are gifted with with that prime, very pristine view from up on the mountain where you can see uh, the entire landscape. Uh, maybe that's also why we um, we admire the pioneers because we know that uh, they had that very pristine uh, moment, which which we can no longer have. Yeah. So I have you know no um, any kind of critique of the pioneers. Right. This was not uh, the point at the time. Uh, I think uh, in Europe at the time we just came from, um, you know, the the important moment of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, a lot of possibilities also in Europe. 
started to become uh, possible, Re Europe being, you know, reunited. Suddenly there was a, a prospect again after so many uh, years and decades of economic decline. Uh, there was a prospect of growth. So yes, there, there was that optimism, but we were getting ready for, you know, the fight, the fight that we're in right now, uh, one, two uh, decades later, the fight with the, with the new giants over the very terms uh, of uh, how we communicate, how we um, relate to each other, how we organize our social life in this uh, digital age. Yeah, maybe at the time it looked like, you know, this was uh, about a deconstruction of utopian agendas. But uh, yeah, that was only, for me, a minor part of the story back then. Um, I, guess, I guess I equated the internet with a can of spray paint. I remember a lot of the kids who came to the next five minutes conference. They were themselves graffiti artists and camcorder activists. Yeah, sure. And it seemed that consumer technology had finally caught up with broadcast technology and it would counter those forces of top-down mainstream media. But many of us, we really just couldn't imagine the coming monopolization of this decentralized space of home computers by giant central corporations. Yeah. Your earlier work, really, over the last decade or two, has chronicled the story of these these economic waves, these empires. Sure. From IBM to Microsoft to, uh, you know, to Google, uh, Facebook, uh, now um, a whole variety of, uh, you know, monopoly uh, platform players, uh, Uber, Airbnb. And so, right. yes, the story continues. And then... What you argue in this book, which is both saddening and heartening to me, is that you know if we want to smash platform capitalism, which many of our team human listeners want to do, then a political economy analysis will not be sufficient. For, for listeners who don't know the term political economy, it's, political economy really just means looking through the lens of media ownership and economics and the power that these players then have over policy. But what you're saying here is that this is important but not sufficient. You're really returning here to the human or to the psyche and saying that we need to engage with an almost spiritual or experiential layer of reality. Mm. Very true. Very true, Douglas. Yes, and uh, that's the point I'm trying to make because um, our analysis may be correct and uh, time will be on our side. But you know, young kids these days grow up in a very, very different um, uh, political environment, um, which is um, in a strange way deeply uh, conservative or regressive, let's say. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it is also a time in which there are almost no traditional social movements or protests movements of course we can list them yes yeah that's there there are protests but they don't generate really larger social 
contexts that uh, become sustainable, where, where you can really sign up and, 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 and join them. This is really difficult. You can like them, yes. Yeah. But the, the, this is already a, a, you know, a really important distinction. Liking is not joining, it's not be, really becoming part of it. So um, if we want to do something with this analysis of the social media platforms and really overturn these monopolies, what we need to do is try to understand more of the uh, psyche of the users and uh, in particular the young uh, users and uh, this is what uh, i've been trying to do in this book and in my view if we do not connect with the very real tensions paradoxes the the deep wishes the the very confused you know um, behaviors that are all out there in the online world and are now so deeply mixed as well with the uh, the everyday uh, experience huh? there is hardly any distinction let's say anymore to make between the real and the virtual we all know that huh? so maybe one of the problems we're facing now is is that they're so deeply intertwined interconnected and um yeah in this book i i try to do that to tell you know some stories i i take some metaphors i, I take some elements out of what i see and the two of them that i go into are uh, yeah the world of the of distraction on the one hand and the other um one is the world of sadness you know People find a lot of things very sad, and I started to notice this, and then I started to do some systematic work on this uh, feeling, what what this contemporary form of melancholia uh, actually is all about. But you seem to suggest that that it's the truth itself that makes us sad, you know, that, and and. If that's the truth, in other words, and it is, I mean, the truth, if you're going to open your awareness to what's happening in our world, you have to be somewhat sad. There's a sadness that will be a part of it, whether it's the sadness of not being able to fully connect to the other people in our lives, the sadness for the refugees who are starving or the hundred children a day in, in mm. you know, uh, Syrian refugees who are dying from cholera or, you know, where, where there's enough to make us sad. The, the truth makes us sad, but there's almost a quality of uh, where you're saying the internet or social media in its in its uh, uh, effort or its corporate effort to draw us in, it's almost like these uh, rabbit holes of sadness saying, come in, be sad here. And you can almost get stuck there. It's almost like the Bardo experience, you know, where you're trying to get out of the body and you could be pulled by a temptation, you know, or you could be just pulled by, by infinite sadness. And on a certain level, it feels like you're saying that there's a different way to engage with sadness. And, you know, maybe in the 60s and 70s, you put on a, a Joni Mitchell album like Blue, you know, sure. and experienced sadness as, as beauty or as compassion. I mean, uh, uh, it, it seems like part of what you're arguing, at least at the outset, is don't just follow, don't pull on the thread of sadness because it's never going to end, particularly out on the internet. Yeah, but I'm also saying um, if we just 
ignore it, we will not overcome it. Uh, so this is right. the, this is the problem. Uh, so by just walking away as an activist, let's say, and and say, you know, we have to look and point at the real <laughs> political <laughs> contradictions. Uh, uh, this this will not. Uh, uh, you know, take us anywhere, and this is the, the the problem. This is a call to arms for for activists to seriously engage with the the emotional psyche uh, of so many young people who are drawn into this world, who do not exactly know um, how to um, get out of it. Because, uh, in my view, let's say the the old to European resolution, the, the proposal, what I call offline romanticism, is not an option. And I, I, I think this is not going to, yeah, the idea of just uh, putting the phone away or um, <clears throat> or just switching it off and then hope for the best. This is the problem. This, uh, it's not working. Uh, I wish uh, it did, though. Yeah, it's like I wish a, it did, right? I remember in the 70s. Right? But I know, in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of people who said, oh, we just don't have a television in our home. I don't let my children watch television. As if that would be enough to just to, to make them, you know, smart, engaged citizens. And it wasn't. Yeah, but these days it's much worse because our yeah. entire social life is out there, right? Uh, mm. So we could say in the 70s or 80s... Uh, we were talking about sources of information, mm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. We were not talking about the fact that these sources of information is completely intertwined with our intimate social life, social life that really matters to us. Yeah? And so this is also what I'm saying. Okay, we can have a, a good laugh about, you know, the youngsters who have uh, five, six hundred so-called friends on Facebook when they start, right? I'm not even talking about them a couple of years later. And right. How many so-called friends or followers they have uh, gathered that they have not even a clue about who they are? We can we can uh, kind of uh, you know ironically look uh, look down on that, but that's precisely not what what I'm trying to uh, achieve here. Right. I mean, and, and you do say, you know, early on that there's there's it feels like there's this choice between, you know, smashing the smartphone or changing the smartphone. You know, it's how do we change how it works? I guess what you're saying is we have to do the latter. We have to well, change. Yeah. Or, or to go back to another, uh, let's say, Euro European thinker, uh, Nietzsche, uh, to say, how can we overcome the smartphone? Right. Which is another way of, uh, of looking at it, um, an, an approach that uh, a contemporary uh, German philosopher, now very much on the right side, Peter Sloterdijk, uh, is uh, exactly, um, you know, investigating in um, his book, uh, We Have to Change Our Lives. And um, um, how can we overcome the technology, which is a very different uh, approach than just uh, putting it um, aside. Because if if you overcome it, you will, in one way or another, uh, embody it uh, as well, right? So what does overcoming a technology look like? Well, first of all, I think, let's, let's just um, look at the, at the first stage, how to do that. It would, for instance, mean that you can still use it in an intense way, 
psychologically, mentally, you try to deal, you try to overcome, you try to learn how to uh, deal with the addictive sides of it. And this is the real problem. Uh, we need to go back to it every few minutes. And if you watch you know, young people, it is indeed compulsive. They, they, they mm. cannot really do some, so much about it. They have to every few minutes um, look at what's going on. This is how the, the software is designed. Uh, there is, there's no, and, and uh, we know that, um, they, Facebook and all that, they use uh, behavioral scientist uh, tricks. Uh, they've all uh, incorporated that in their interface design. And we are forced to go back and drawn into it again, because we need that update. We need to know what's going on. We need to right. know if the other is online. Did he or she respond Right? These are vital pieces of information. Right. And they're just being leveraged, though. I mean, they're taking, you know, true or real or, or even uh, 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 beneficial uh, social attributes and behaviors and leveraging and magnifying them with the technology to make the platforms themselves uh, addictive. And there's, you know, now there's, uh, and I never know how to respond to these folks, but there's the new, you know, uh, humane technology movement. I followed that, so, yeah. Yeah, and on the one hand, when I first heard about them, I said, oh, great, you know, and they've read my books and they care about making things less impulsive. And, you know, I met the guy at, at, at one conference, I met the guy who developed the streak feature for Snapchat, who now feels terribly guilty about, you mm. know, taking Las Vegas you know, slot machine algorithms and putting them in into social media news feeds and wants to do good things. And they're all joining the humane technology movement. But, you know, as I've, I've said on this show, when, when I hear them talking about humane technology, it sounds to me like, you know, cage-free chickens, that, that they're still going to extract our data. They're still going to, uh, uh, you know... Uh, victimize us one way or another, but they're going to try to do it as humanely as possible. And every argument they make is like, well, you can still make a lot of money as a big platform, but you don't have to be quite as abusive to your users. That that it's a it's a compromise that still sort of rubs me the wrong way. It doesn't feel like they're in it for the humans so much as looking for a way to uh, uh, create a... Uh, some sort of uh, uh, demilitarized zone between humans and these companies. In the past, I thought, Douglas, that there would inevitably be a counter movement underway that would look down on the smartphone as something that is ancient, that is, that is silly, that is uh, kind of, you know, mundane mm. old-fashioned for the old farts for something that is you know so not cool <laughs> and right so so the question is uh, how can we uncool this uh this object uh, <clears throat> and um one way of doing that is first of all and to understand all these uh, um things that are uh, at play um Another for me is really to not uh, walk into the trap of uh, offline romanticism, but to 
target it straight on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so to deny things and to hope that it will somehow, someday, be gone, gone away, and become un unpopular. I think we've passed that point. People are right to say that, especially young people, they are locked in. And there's no way for them on their own to just uh, escape, to liberate themselves, which mm. I find, you know, uh, to be honest, uh, a sad and um, saddening, uh, a, a tragic uh, thought that uh, the, the rebellious energy, let's say, is not, it may be, maybe it's there, but it will not focus uh, itself on on that very very strategic object that they carry around with them and uh, you know is with them uh, day and night in such a close and intimate way so because they can't you think it's it's then it's up to the industry to try to you know modify it's it's abuse so i mean you kind of in general you you would approve of the humane technology movement as a uh, as an industry uh, kind of a self-regulation? Yes. Uh, not coming from the industry. Um, I think uh, the way we need to overhaul these um, systems is, you know, the way we've done it in, in um, over the past decades. And that means that we thinkers, artists, activists, cultural workers, we have a special responsibility because uh, in the end, we are working in the, you know, in the concept factories. We are, you know, in, through education, through artworks, through all the labs we have and the um, free spaces that we still have, we can make a difference. And uh, it's very unlikely that this difference will come from inside, let's say, Silicon Valley. I don't. I don't believe uh, this. They are themselves highly addicted, not uh, to the, the, their own technologies, but to the revenue streams they have uh, mm. set up, right? So for mm -hmm. Google and Facebook, just to uh, pull out of the advertisement market, the one you know that you have studied so intimately, and you know that I learned a lot uh, from you in oh. that uh, in that respect, how they set up this this revenue stream that. We, we don't know much about and still so much of that is invisible and we under, still understand so little uh, mm -hmm. of how these giants are ma making these billions of dollars, you know. So for them to unhook <laughs> from that money stream is going <laughs> to be the real question. So, um, and I don't see that, uh, for, for instance, in Europe, uh, we will be able to do that through top-down regulation. I, d I don't think we can regulate a bit of privacy, a bit of this and that, but that's not going to make a, a crucial difference. And it's interesting, the way the way you use the word Europe in, uh, uh, in this book almost feels like Europe represents um, humanism. It, it's, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, America is stuck with these kind of giant corporations running things where it's where it's uh, some sort of top down capitalism running 
or determining our engagement with technology. And 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 you contrast that with China on the other side, which is, you know, doing it through government repression or using these tools that way. And you, you sort of suggest that Europe might be able to offer this third alternative, the sort of the human, the human alternative. And well, yes, I, I do believe this. Uh, you're, you're, you're right, but <laughs> you don't mean Europe, the countries even, you know, it's not, uh, I, 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 I have trouble saying that because uh, it, it comes from a, a position of extraordinary weakness, right? Europe is neither uh, the hardware uh, pr- production place, which is China, nor has it developed its own mm, Silicon Valley. Uh, and this is a very easy um, you know, observation to make. So Europe sits somewhere in the middle it's a it's a medium size consumer market with a half a billion uh, people, and it is because of that kind of mid size uh, kind of uh, continent that um, uh, you know it can maybe uh, make a, a difference. But maybe in a little bit of time, give it a few more decades, uh, India will probably have, uh, you know, a similar size. But I'm interested in in Europe less as the region than Europe almost as an idea. In other words, that, 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 that when you were talking about the possibility for, you know, art or content or experiences to communicate to young people, and maybe change their orientation to these technologies or change the way they understand their consciousness or their experience as related to social networks and different uh, t- technological designs, that that feels like uh, that that to me is what Europe, the idea, represents. In other words, Europe, the idea of an artistic mm-hmm. tradition. Yeah, that's true. We're deeply content people, Right. right? And of course, uh, in the Silicon Valley notion of things, content no longer matters. Right. And, um, Europe has learned uh, this uh, the hard way over the past decades. So it is out of that weakness. It's out of that uh, almost irrelevant position of you know uh, we <laughs> we the content uh, content continent. <laughs> right. But there's there's a beauty in that though. Yeah, there's a union. Absolutely. I, I, I agree. But it's also, um, you know, at least its starting point is uh, is a rather tragic one. This is the other element that that I keep having such trepidation about bringing in. You know, it's back to your quote. If we want to smash platform capitalism, a political economy analysis will not be sufficient. So here, when I think of my career, you know, I started as a theater person and came to realize that, oh my gosh, my my Brechtian understanding of the world is not going to be enough. And I met people like you and Mark Derry and Richard Barbrook, the the the, the Marxists, the thinkers, the economists. And I, I spent 
20 years getting a political economic analysis of the landscape and wrote books about, you know, Google and 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 Facebook and the, the economy and capitalism and currency. And while I was doing that work, I felt so suspicious of theater and fiction and all the people saying, oh, what we need is a new story so young people can understand a new narrative, a new way. And I, I almost started to use the word narrative as mm. a, a, a way of knowing that this person is just spouting bullshit. Sure. <laughs> that, it's a joke. But now yeah. it's come full circle where where the people who, like you, who originally turned me, I mean, it's mm. funny to say, oh, here, no, you turned me on definitely. to Marx, mm -hmm. but the people who turned me on to Marx are now coming around and saying, well, wait a minute, it's we need to engage with people through art, through story, through narrative. We need to make another sort of experiential worldview available to people. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely the case because otherwise we'll we'll just uh, be uh, be be stuck in this social media cage. I guess. I mean, in some ways, you're saying it's almost it's not enough to be right. You know? No, it's definitely not <laughs> enough. And, uh, and that is 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 in a funny way going way beyond the current debate about truth and uh, fake news and so on, right? Mm -hmm. It has something to do also with persuasion and with desire, uh, with the feeling that you're uh, being taken seriously. Your voice uh, counts, makes a difference. And, uh, and maybe also that you're not alone. Um, I think that's also a funny way. You know, are we really uh, together? Uh, this is mm. uh, this is the really problematic side. This this question I, I once posed, like, what is the social in social media? Where is it mm. coming from? What what does it mean? Do we create new social bonds in that environment, or right? Know, um, and can we think of another form of of social life um, beyond uh, these uh, these platforms, or? I think right. there must be so many different ways of social life, you know. I think we really need this radical collective imagination to think up completely different social relationships uh, from the ones we have right now. Well, right, because the, the, I mean, as we know, the social relationships we have online, they don't trigger the mirror neurons. They don't release the same oxytocin. So we have, you know, a, a, a social engagement without the sort of the biological proof. <laughs> so yeah. we, we end That's up distrusting fair. the other person because I had the engagement, but it didn't activate what it should have enacted or activated. And you don't blame the technology. You don't blame Skype for that. You blame the other human and mm. or your own sadness, your own yeah. insufficiency. Or anger for that matter, right? Um, right. I haven't uh, made a, a sufficient uh, analysis of the anger part. And I'm fully aware of that in this book. Um, already early on, I discovered, of course, that uh, the sadness is uh, predominantly a female or feminine feeling, which is very interesting. And there are even um, sources from inside Silicon Valley who admit 
you know, that uh, the um, social media architectures, uh, the way they are designed, are primarily designed for women, not by women, or of course, because there's, there's hardly a, right. a, a woman uh, involved. Eh? So this is in itself uh, quite interesting. This is all designed by males, primarily for um, a female uh, market. So this is interesting. The sadness is, uh, I inter interpret it, and, and you can see that in my sources. I mean, uh, they're overwhelmingly uh, female, and mm. um, and there is even a you know a feminist reading uh, of uh, of the sadness uh, uh, and um, in relation even to uh, technology. And we all are very aware that the counterpart of it. Is the is the anger? Are the trolls? Are the males that uh, you know are completely right. out of uh, out of control online? Right, because they they can do what they do in this disconnected space much more easily than they could you know with eye contact. You know, although I guess they're training themselves to get to that insensitive place where they can. But there there was something else you you were, you were just mentioned when you were talking about the idea of people's voice and especially young people, you know, wondering if they're if they're if they have a voice, much less can they even express what their voice is online. The difference between the voice that we would share and project online versus all of the data that's being taken from us Anyway, so it, it's a strange conundrum where a young person is both more observed, more watched than ever before, but at the same time, their their voice is more drowned out, you know, and, and helping people distinguish between what is it to share everything about yourself, even the stuff about yourself that you don't yourself know about yourself, and at the same time, feeling silenced. Yeah, but there is there's a multiplicity of ways to uh, let's say uh, express your emotions but they are done within a very specific format and look at the selfie we know we know exactly um yeah, how limited in a way the selfie is right it's a repertoire uh, you can express uh, yeah, X, Y, Z uh, emotions uh, uh, through uh, ABC gestures. We, 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 know, we know them all by, by now. Uh, but the, the, this format is not a voice. <laughs> you know? So the mm. selfie format is not exactly giving people a voice. Hmm? And maybe that's you know that that's what I'm what I'm 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 looking for. Uh, so the the format is is indeed um, you know g giving young people the possibility or to express themselves. There's no doubt, right? Mm. They're making <laughs> hundreds of selfies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, th this is not uh, this is not the point. Huh? But is it uh, is it essential? Uh, is it really strategic, Douglas, that we mm. propose this? idea that there is a voice beyond those strict formats is that a way out i think it is you know i think you know i've i've often talked to to young people about how 
the the formats online became easier but more restrictive as we moved from the the wild world wide web of html to you know to myspace and ultimately to facebook you know where it's a, a cookie cutter presentation that that it's not a mirror of who you are it's a it's a it's like lego you can only put it together with the pieces that they've given you but the more you're, you, you are raised in an environment where those are the only pieces you have to express who you are, the more you tend to think of yourself as composed of those pieces. Yeah, this is <laughs> it's so difficult, you know. This is kind of where, where I stop because it's now up to maybe others to design those new voices. And how can a voice be designed in a way that it doesn't become a format? Let's say let's let's put that right. first of all out there as a as a challenge. Right. Well, the other way of saying that is, how can we do any creative social act without it becoming commodified? Yeah. <laughs> no. True. And then uh, you know, uh, observed, surveilled. <laughs> right. I mean, but that. I guess right. But you are arguing that that while while many of us have looked at it through the lens of. Uh, of of capitalism or or what capitalism does. Like, okay, here's a social interaction. Now capitalism comes and ruins it. Um, to just say that, well, that's an element of it, but you're trying mm. to almost pull yeah. back further yeah. and say it's a different, almost dehumanizing force that we're contending with. Well, one of the problems there is, of course, uh, that there is this this uh, layer. So the, there's uh, there's the, the layer of the visible and th that... Uh, element can be very sensitive and it can be very even very personal but nonetheless the moment you do that when you're on tinder on whatever platform wherever you are right whatsapp you name it hmm. there is that other hidden element of extraction the fact that no matter you know how intimate how direct you communicate you're producing data. Those data are recorded. Huh? They are <laughs> then used uh, against you. They are, huh? right? And, and mm. there's not even a, a way you can really see that. How, how can we, you know, raise that visibility of that invisible layer? Because I, I think the, the, the critique of platform capitalism, you know, is is directed at that invisible layer it's not it's not targeted at the individuals who who have the most you know strange and wonderful experiences with their friends or people they don't know at all well you say in in early on you say uh when you're trying to describe the sadness, you say that the, that the sadness that it, it expresses the growing gap between the self image of a perceived social status and the actual precarious reality, which is an interesting way of saying it. So there's this, your, your, your perceived social status online and what's really going on in your life. Well, that, we know that, that this gap is growing by the day. And uh, particularly, I think in the United States, I'm always shocked, Douglas, when I see the statistics of what a medium income, an annual income in your country is, you know, it's so low and it's going down, right? We know 
that the middle class, uh, you know, has lost all ground and, and, and people feel they're in a free fall. And at the same time, as they're in that free fall, they're online and they have a very, very complex, you know, social life out there. Well, the, yes, that gap is what uh, occupies me. And that, well, the darkest, uh, the darkest truth or or vision that uh, you you share in this in this book, it kind of goes all the way back to um, you know IBM and the punch cards and you know the two thousand punch card machines that were being used you know by the Nazis in their concentration camps with the full knowledge of IBM and, and IBM subsidiaries actually designing the applications. And I mean, uh, remotely, no. Yeah, I know Jeez. remotely. So here's yeah. IBM actually, you know, it, it's Maintaining funny because in America from the United States, you know, right till 44 until deep into 1945. It is indeed an amazing story. It is. And, and that, you know, and CEO Thomas Watson for whom, the current Watson technology was named was fully aware and or, and orchestrating this. You know, we we still they have Jews in America not buying Mercedes and BMWs and even Fords, but mm. there's no no problem with IBM that was actually no. you know doing the work. Mm. You know, so the 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 thing is, it's not just to say, oh look, IBM is this icky company. No, and but, I am but, describing that is because of that invisibility of what I in. That chapter called, you know, technological violence, which is really difficult for me to to deal with. I in that chapter, I go back, uh, you know, in my own past and the past of my my parents and Holland in the war and mm -hmm. the post-war period. But at the same time, you know, um, as I write this, the whole drama in Myanmar uh, unfolds with an active participation of Facebook who facilitates, um, you know, this, this genocide and is, is completely unwilling and uh, unaware um, while being on, on the ground uh, that it is actively setting up these two uh, groups and, and populations against uh, one another. Well, it, it, it partly makes me concerned that that even if people like uh, Kevin Kelly are are wrong and technology doesn't want anything it makes me concerned that the the technologies may be biased for the the abuse of humans that whether it's the 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 extreme disparity of wealth that the technologies create or the dehumanized social sphere that they that they create that maybe what IBM did with the punch cards, it wasn't so much that Thomas Watson was this evil CEO, but that the technology itself, the, the categorization, the perfect memory, uh, the, the divisions and, and uh, uh, you know, d definitions of people as different and in categories, that there might be a, a bias of computer technology towards these anti-human effects yeah. and you you talk about it in it toward the end of the book the the idea that that technology is is leading us to think of certain humans as part of a superhuman caste who believe as i i wrote in this piece about billionaires trying to leave us behind that the masses at this point are not even worth keeping alive we don't need their labor because we have automation they're just this big 
problem of healthcare. So maybe the computer as a means of population control and genocide is its ultimate purpose. Correct. And um, <clears throat> there is something to be learned from the past there, right? And so so that is also interesting. We, we can see and project this into the into the future, but we even have uh, evidence uh, from from the past um, of our parents and grandparents where they were confronted with this, uh, uh, you know, abstract, violent infrastructure with that machine, uh, you know, that they were uh, overwhelmed by because they, they weren't really uh, prepared. The humans can read a political ideology. They can understand that. But can they read machines and infrastructures? This is really difficult. Only this week, uh, something remarkable happened here um, in the Netherlands that um, finally uh, a very, very old Jewish guy, he went on and on in court, and he finally won the case against the, the Dutch railway company, the Nederlandse Spoorwegen. And he uh, forced them uh, to um, you know, admit that they were complicit uh, in transporting, um, you know, these 120,000 uh, Jews uh, here in the Netherlands uh, to the extermination camps. And this was this is uh, was amazing. This was the you know the national headline. And this huh. uh, yeah the, uh, this is uh, an amazing uh, thing. I I know it's very late, and. Uh, you know, most people have died, um, but um, nonetheless, uh, this uh, for me was an uh, was an amazing um, news fact. Right, or you know, just three four years ago, BMW finally apologizes <laughs> for the using you know, Jewish slave labor in the uh, production of the vehicles. Sure, um, and this is important. This is really important work because with that, we we kind of uh, show. Uh, that um, <clears throat> these infrastructures are not uh, neutral or um, naive, that it's not just, uh, you know, engineers uh, who do some innocent work here in the background. Right. Well, you know, uh, uh, Steve Fuller, I think you know him, he's a, a kind of a transhumanist uh, thinker, philosopher from, from the UK, or, or actually he's from the US, but he lives out there. And um uh, he and I and some other people were at IBM Watson in New York for a, a panel where we spoke with the people who do Watson, and we we engaged them on the on the question of whether they bear any sort of responsibility or moral responsibility or ethical responsibility for how the technologies are deployed. You know, are they going to put restrictions and all? And for people who don't know, Watson is IBM's uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, project. They said, well, we don't really think about that, that it's up to our clients how these things are going to be deployed. And I'm like, well, how did that work out the last time, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, IBM and the Holocaust. Yeah, I know. Please, uh, you know, read Edwin Black's uh, book, IBM and the Holocaust. It's an right. amazing story. And uh, I think it, sh it should really um, um, be uh, republished um, and uh, read uh, widely because... Um, this is uh, this is an amazing uh, story that um, is uh, not really no well known. I have to say, right? I mean, that's why I do take 
I find it hopeful, you know, that Google employees are willing to walk out, you mm-hmm. know, based on a on a China policy. Yeah. Of course, it's easier for them. Google employees, most of them are working together in this giant campus. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a real world social interaction in the lunchroom or at the cafeterias or they're 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 with each other. You know, IBM is such a a uh disparate network of offices. Everybody's, you know, telecommuting and it doesn't have that same social reality. So it's uh, a little bit trickier for a company like that to to engage on that level. Yeah, but yeah, to politicize those um, uh, companies uh, is uh, is one. Uh, we need to, however, uh, look also at the underlying infrastructure they are using, right? And and um, one of the ideas there, which I think is becoming inevitable and that our generation really also has to address, which is uh, kind of this unprecedented um, uh, centralization of the uh, of the so-called decentralized network that uh, was once called uh, Internet, Internet, the network of networks, right? And so uh, how are we going to dismantle the cloud? And this is really one of the, the big challenges I think we we have ahead, which goes well beyond um, the question of, um, you know, um, let's say nationalizing uh, Google or um, splitting up uh, the, um, uh, the, the monopolies uh, through antitrust, uh, uh, regulation, whatever, right? There's a, there's an underlying issue uh, of uh, the architecture of uh, of the current infrastructure, which deeply troubles me. Right, and then the question is: Do we do we change that by uh, engaging with the the people who are making these things, or with the the users who are, I mean, n- not even fully aware of how this stuff how this stuff even works. I mean, it seems to me like this, the stories that work with humans are, you know, like you, you, you recount the story of Ellie Mills, the YouTuber who ended up, you know, having this kind of breakdown on, on YouTube, you know, she, she, and, and because she was living the, the Mm. accelerated version or the amplified version of the YouTube life, she becomes this great kind of cautionary tale for anybody involved in this, that, oh my gosh, these are, this is sadness by design, that this is the only direction this can go is is towards some version of her breakdown. Well, you know, it's it's I remember do you remember Justin Hall? He was a an early YouTuber. They made a movie about mm. him before YouTube. It was he had they made a movie about him called Homepage. I think in the late 90s, he was one of the first bloggers who was sharing everything about the girls he was having sex with in Mm. college and everything. And, you know, five or 10 years into it, he ended up also having this kind of nervous breakdown video he made uh, online. And and it made a lot of us realize, oh, this is where this goes. It's sort of like showing people, if you start taking heroin now, this is where you end up. It feels like we just need another breakdown story every every six months for people to realize, uh, uh, you know, what uh, where, the sadness at the end of this particular rainbow. Yeah, if only we could just forget about it. And uh, this is still my, let's say, my deep wish, you know, that one day an, a, a generation will wake up and 
they will no longer care uh, about all this, right? And and that would be such a liberation, would be such a, uh, you know, uh, an amazing, uh, shocking, probably it will be completely shocking to everyone. Like, huh? how can you do that, right? How can you not care? Huh? Um, it's almost inconceivable, but uh, <laughs> maybe because of that, all the more uh, real and uh, maybe uh, we are close to that point. I, I think we may be, you know, my uh, my students at CUNY, these are, are middle and lower middle class, you know, working class um, kids. They've got the devices and they'll, you know, use an app like, you know, Tinder or something opportunistically to, to, to have physical comfort. Um, but I don't think that they see it uh, their their social media identities as who they are quite anymore. I think no. they look at it and it's we more need instrumentalized. A new form of ironic distance, right? Mm-hmm. Not only towards others, but also towards ourselves. Yeah, yeah, and I I do think they are 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 nurturing a a a, a different a, a different sort of uh, a different sort of awareness, but the the. The, the end state collectively rather than individually is if we are if we are moving into a world where the elites no longer believe that the masses are worth keeping alive um, mm. do I mean I wonder even yeah, when I hear the thesis what, of Harari and uh, that's why maybe also his books are uh, popular because um, he at least dares to uh, ask uh, those sorts of questions. I mean, when those questions are asked, it's funny. I think about how does the listener hear that? Do they hear, oh, how is this bad for humanity as a collective organism? Or are they thinking, how do I position myself so that I survive when they wipe out (laughs) the people that, how do I be one of the needed people versus one of the unneeded ones? Or Uh, can we really, uh, you know, set up a a system of... um redistribution of wealth in which, uh, you know, people will have um, that uh, basic um, universal income um, right. or have uh, have forms of, um, you know, of money and, uh, and in- income streams that provide uh, this, uh, the, the basic needs and um, uh, so that we can have, uh, you know, more relaxed forms uh, of, uh, of life because uh, the this rat race will not continue. Right. And that's why, you know, toward the end of the book, you get into the conversation about the commons, um, you know, which which is, is to, uh, for my money anyway, it's a, it seems more promising than universal basic income, at least in the way that UBI is talked about now on the West Coast of the U.S. It's a, sure. a, a you know, a welfare program to keep Uber going. There's, but, uh, of course, we, we're not living in progressive times. So, um the idea production, even on uh, on that particular topic, uh, is deeply um, conservative or, or techno libertarian. Right. Give it, give it a name. Yes, but uh, that says more about our time than it, in fact, says about that particular concept. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, people think I'm anti-universal basic income, which I'm not. I wrote this article that the original title before it was it was changed to something more sensationalist was, you know, I, I was I used to be a fan of UBI. Then I gave a talk 
at Uber. You know, when when I heard you know Uber employees expressing their vision of UBI, I thought, oh no, <laughs> this uh-huh. isn't this isn't <clears throat> good at all. But but a commons, I mean, and this goes back in some ways to to some of the work in the Money Lab Reader and and the other work you've done. Um, your 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 argument for the commons is also an argument against against sadness. No. Yeah, it's very much um, uh, an argument for new forms of uh, sociality uh, in, in which uh, you know we we can we can truly share experiences, resources, and um, uh, share uh, you know our, even our deepest uh, thoughts, right? Because we, we we can no longer even distinguish, of course, between uh, all these uh, things. In the in times when everything is monetized, financialized, even our private lives are. And does does I guess the the question that I keep getting to, and and I had Dana Boyd on the show who wrote this, uh, I guess somewhat controversial essay arguing that media literacy and technology literacy has. Uh, uh, made us more vulnerable to uh, uh, the demagoguery of Trump than it has really educated us. But it, it seems to me that media literacy and understanding how these platforms really work and work on us is one of the only ways to orient ourselves. I uh, also still believe uh, very much <laughs> in, in that um, um, the way uh, you know, in which uh, we will empower people is uh, is first to give them true insights, uh, and then provide the possibility that uh, they can at least, uh, let's say, relax <laughs> a little mm. bit, if not, uh, you know, walk away uh, from it. It's funny because when you know when I first met you in '92 uh, or '93. You were living a, a lifestyle that I didn't know existed, I guess. Mm. Uh, you know, I you know went to college and I was like, I got to earn money. I got to get out there. And uh, I, I was very concerned at the time with I want to I want to express progressive and pro-human ideas, but I need them to also to be embraced by the market so that I have a career. And when I went to see you, you were like living up in this kind of little attic garret space yes um on the it's, door uh, a squat right it was a squat a, and yeah at, at that time it was just uh, about to be um legalized and uh, it became a social housing and you couldn't stay there at that point or did you yeah i i well it was renovated and when then we came back yes i lived there for uh full 10 years in that house wow. on the on the an amsterdam uh, canal um uh, until um, yeah, I myself moved um, to uh, to Australia to do you know what you did. I I did my uh, degree there and uh, and then I came back to start my uh, Institute of Network Cultures uh, back here in Amsterdam. And now, what what keeps you alive? And and how can people support that if they want to? <laughs> what keeps you doing your your work? <clears throat> Is it do government pay for the institute or do you get uh, no, donors? What much, happens? But I I think I, I still have a very comfortable uh, position in comparison. I'm not at a, a university, so I, I I can't do the you know the traditional forms of uh, let's say supervision of MAs or PhDs. Mm. It's a very um, you know. 
let's say, low-level uh, applied science, polytech uh, research place, but I have tremendous um, uh, freedoms and support here to run this uh, small uh, space, which I'm very, very uh, proud of. And we've been doing this for 14 years, which, uh, you know, in itself, in internet times is, of course, <laughs> a lifetime. Yeah. And so um, we've been able to... Um, to build certain, uh, yeah, traditions or to set up our own uh, independent infrastructure. Again, I, I strongly believe as an activist that we we need to have that. We, we cannot just <clears throat> only critique. We have to build up our own infrastructure and work from there. And uh, this is what I've been uh, doing. And people can support us by, you know, contacting us, working together, because, uh, yes, we, uh, I still strongly believe in the power of, uh, of networks and networking, knowing, of course, that in the age of, of platforms, you know, the, uh, the, the whole network and the whole philosophy of network is very, very much under pressure and is almost about to uh, go distinct. Right. I mean, and where should they where should they go to a uh, networkcultures.org? Yeah. To, uh... And um, and then they'll find, um, uh, you know, our publications, our programs. And uh, we're particularly interested in um, working people who uh, develop uh, Internet uh, alternatives, who build up new forms of uh, of community and community networking. We're um, particularly interested, of course, in the whole question of uh, monetization and financialization and the question of uh, how creative workers, artists, designers are going to make a living in the 21st century. This is an urgent question, and we try to uh, answer that in the, the so-called Money Lab program. Mm. Well, I love I love the the arc of your career and I'm I'm you know really inspired by by this new book by Sad by Design which Thank you. on on the on the one hand it seems like a departure on the other hand it's almost a, a a culmination in some ways it feels a little bit to me like the same place in your career that the team human book yep. is in my career yeah, that is sort of returning to there is. this essential mm. humanity you know mm -hmm. we can speak really of a convergence there yeah i strongly believe that and and the other beauty at least for me of sad by design is looking it, it, it helped me see sadness, even sadness itself, not as something to keep trying to run away from. You know, I think in America, we're told that sadness is bad mm -hmm. and that because of that, these platforms are able to leverage our our sadness phobia yeah. in a way that makes us victimized by them. But if we see sadness as part of the human experience, or at worst, you know, a warning about certain things, where the water's warm and where the water's cold, um, it it really becomes a friend. It's a tool. It's a it's a lamp in the darkness. You know, rather than this, uh, rather than some poisonous external influence. Of course, uh, there are yeah. uh, more harsh forms of it. Uh, look at the depression and the way uh, mm -hmm. this is becoming really a big disease, burnout. Right at at some point, sadness really uh, takes a toll and uh, and becomes even a you know a medical uh, problem for, for for many people however i have described sadness really 
as a very vague and general um, feeling in popular culture that is very widespread, that is very thin, right? It's not mm. extreme. It's not extreme. It's the opposite of, of, of the extreme. Maybe it's even the opposite of uh, anger in that sense uh, as well, right? So, right. Uh, and uh, it is, and it is, is that that um, yeah, fluidity of it um, that uh, also makes it uh, maybe hard to to see, uh, hard to identify, but we experience it all. Mm. Well, thank you, Kirt Loving, for being on Team Human and everything you're doing. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was media activist and scholar, author of the new book, Sad by Design, Kirt Loving. You can find out more about his work at networkedcultures.org. You can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.